the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. Aubrey, let's do a quick check-in. Okay, thank you. Yesterday, we told our audience that you tested positive for COVID. Uh, You have since had some kids go down with COVID. Oh, man, we are dropping like flies at my house. It's terrible. What is going on in the Samson home? How are you feeling? Yeah, I am feeling improved, thankfully. Lots of tiredness, but, you know, hanging in there. So I feel really grateful that uh, it's not as bad as it could be. And I think I'm through the worst. But now I've got kids dropping like flies. So... I'm thankful for technology because they can go to school online and hopefully not miss too much. And you and I can record remotely like this. So mm-hmm. that is certainly a gift of this season. And, um, you know, hopefully next week I'll have my voice back. And I'm anyway, just thankful to you, Brian, for sticking with me through this. Did Kevin just move out to the woods? Is he in a Kevin, tent somewhere? <laughs> Kevin <laughs> yesterday went, I'm moving to the basement. <laughs> he I'm he gone. literally, he like packed a suitcase and moved downstairs. <laughs> good for him. That's so funny. That's really uh, good. Well, good times. I'm glad that you're feeling a little bit better. Thank I'm sure it, it'll take a little while. Sorry for your yeah. kids, but uh, hey, this seems to be what's happening mm-hmm. these days. Uh, did I tell you this? I think I said this last week to Steve Koble. Uh, I saw a great meme that said right now with Omicron and so many people getting it, it's like, uh, they likened it to when you were in junior high and you know, when you're in junior high, did you play dodgeball in gym class? Uh, they, they likened it to like, you're the last kid left in dodgeball <laughs> and the other team all like lines up to throw at once and you try to <laughs> dodge them all at once. That feels so accurate. Yep. They said that is what it is like now. Well, we're glad that, again, that technology allows us to still do the show, uh, even though we are not in the same room together. But, uh, you know, get better and we will be able to do that again. All right. Kind of COVID related. But, Aubrey, I want to expand this to a larger conversation, kind of about loving your neighbor or Paul's words about uh, not being a stumbling block to your neighbor. I'm, I'm curious because right now, especially in Illinois, we are still one of the strictest um States as it pertains to masks, right? Yes. Our kids are still masked in school. Lots of restaurants and businesses you walk in because of the state's mask mandate. You know, you have to wear a mask. Uh, and you and I were talking off air. A lot of our friends in southern states, namely down in Tennessee, uh, they don't, there's not a mask to be seen, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, and, and the big news out of England today is, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson said they're not going to mandate masks anywhere in the country anymore. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. They, he said this is now going to be up to people. Like they can make their choices. And so masks are a huge deal right now. And, and really at the heart of it is, you have people who still believe like masks are one of the or maybe the key thing next to vaccines that are going to keep people safe. And you have other people who believe that masks kind of the other end of the spectrum, that masks are really just performative right now right, right. and not really doing anything. And so we understand that spectrum. And with that as the backdrop, 
we saw this story out of all the places, the Supreme Court of the United States of America yesterday. Uh, Sonia Sotomayor, one of the Supreme Court justices, uh, she uh, she's at a higher risk for severe illness because she has diabetes. OK, yeah. so she has diabetes. And because of that, Chief Justice John Roberts asked all the other justices to wear masks on her behalf is what yeah. he said, basically so that she can come and be a part of this. Uh, eight of the nine did it. Uh, but Justice Neil Gorsuch he refused to wear a mask. And coincidentally, he happens to be in the seat next to her. Hmm. Uh, he refused to do it. And so now she is attending oral arguments remotely. She does not feel comfortable doing this. And this is kind of wow. this story. You know, you're looking at a huge thing like the Supreme Court. But this is kind of a microcosm for what's going on across our state, yeah. uh, across our country right now. People going, I don't have to wear a mask, so you can't make me versus other people saying, Listen, it's a small price to pay to make mm. other people feel comfortable because they, they like in, you know, they like to pull the verse of loving your neighbor or whatever sure. else. Sure. How, Aubrey, I guess what I want to get to is how do we wrestle with this? Because, you know, you could make that argument, do this to love your neighbor with all sorts of things, right? Right, like we can, right. There's right. really no end to that. At the same time, we're in the midst of a pandemic and there are people who, uh, the, you know, whether a mask is worn or not will be the decision as to whether they're willing to be a part of your church service or your school or your business or whatever else it might be. So how do you wrestle with this right now? And how do you think uh, those of our listeners, especially the Christ followers, should wrestle with this thing? Yeah. I, how do I wrestle with it? I mean, I'll just say I don't like wearing masks. I don't like that my kids have to wear a mask. Like, it's not that I don't think anyone is like, I love putting on a mask every day, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you know? So I'll just say, yeah, totally. Okay. That said, I don't know when, and, and I, I'm taking this, I, I watched a comedian on Netflix and she was so inappropriate, but so funny. But she said, our nation does not know how to sacrifice. Mm. What is the big deal about putting a piece of fabric over your nose and mouth for an hour or two to protect your neighbor? And that's honestly how I feel. I, there are not a lot of places in scripture that talk about standing up for like rights that you feel like you have. There are a lot of places in scripture about laying down your life for a friend mm. and laying down your rights for the better of the, the good of someone else. And, and I, I am to the point, I mean, here I am someone with COVID right now. I don't understand why putting on a mask just to be around your neighbor, if they feel more comfortable with it should cause any question for the Christ follower. Mm. I really don't like, we are literally called to lay down our life for our friends, for our enemies, and for strangers. So if we can't even put on a mask, I don't know how we can follow the call of Jesus, which is to die for someone, mm. to show them that we love them. So I know that sounds extreme, Brian, but I, I, I don't understand why this justice would not just put on a mask for his neighbor. I, I absolutely think it it comes across as unkind and selfish. I'm guessing that's not his motivation, but it certainly comes across that way. I don't know. What do you think? I struggle with it. I think you're right. I do struggle with it because the question becomes, where's the end to this, right? Mm. Like, where does this go? I do. I would like to differentiate between uh, the idea of 
to be loving to your neighbor, we should all wear masks all the time, like kind of a corporate deal versus your friend, your parishioner, your coworker asking you, hey, I know you disagree with this, but for for my sake, would you be willing? For me, there's a difference between the corporate and the private. That makes total sense. And the personal, I should say. Yeah. if somebody, if if people want to have the argument about should we keep wearing masks for the next year or something, I'm going to stand up and no, I don't right. think so. I think right. we got to get away from this. Uh, I kind of tend to start to see the more performative in that in there. But if somebody comes up to me and says, "Hey, I I I'm really I have uh, she's got diabetes, right? Or maybe mm-hmm. I'm just not comfortable. Yeah. But I would love to be a part of this. We're friends, or we are coworkers, or we go to church together." Would you, for my sake, be willing to wear a mask? That's when I think we have to put kind of our personal biases aside and go, yeah. you know what? Uh, they're not trying to politicize it. They're not trying to do this. They're, they're asking me as a friend. And I think at that moment, uh, I'd be much more willing to go, you know what? I'm going to do what you ask me mm-hmm. to do here yeah. uh, because because what you'd be asked to do versus what I'm being asked to do, my, mine's a lot smaller. Uh, For the sake of the friendship, for the neighbor, for whatever else. I think when you talk universal, when you talk, you know, mandate, I think that's a different story when people are throwing around, love your neighbor. Well, you could you could create a lot of laws around that. Sure, very true. But what bothers me about that story is just, you know what, like. In hopeful, I don't know if Supreme Court justices are friends or if they act as just coworkers or how they are, but like it's a, it's a personal relationship. And that's when I read that. I was like, oh, that that feels worse to me. So yeah. uh, masks are not going away, at least the debate about them. Uh, and so we, you know, very interesting what you out there think. Well, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Chuck Mingo. Chuck is the founder and CEO of an organization called Courageous Love. Uh, and they've put out some experiences, some curriculum called Living Undivided and Working Undivided. They're trying to wade into the issue of of racial unity uh, and what does it look like for the church to be part of that solution. He's also a pastor, uh, and we are excited to talk to Chuck next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm, and Aubrey and I are thrilled. One of the things we love to do on the show is to just have uh, interesting people who are running interesting organizations that are that we feel like are important in this moment for the church, for society. Uh, and, and that's why we are excited to have on the founder and CEO of an organization called Courageous Love, uh, which is the organization behind the Living Undivided and Working Undivided experience. He's also pastor at Crossroads Church in Cincinnati. His name is Chuck Mingo. Chuck, how you doing today, bud? Brian, Aubrey, I am doing well. So glad to be with you all today. Yeah, it's so glad. We're really thankful for you spending some time with us. Before we talk about your organization and what you guys are trying to do, uh, help our audience get to know you. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to our audience? Sure, be happy to. So um, I always start by saying I am a very fortunate husband to be married to my wife, Maria. Um, and I'm also a proud dad to Nathan, Samuel, and Isabel. And um, I care about people. And so I, I want to be a collaborative leader and particularly a leader who's so called to be in the space of um, racial healing and solidarity and justice in the church. I'm also passionate about running, 
Um, this year, I'm very passionate about our Cincinnati Bengals, so we'll see where that goes this weekend. year <laughs> <laughs> here in the city of Cincinnati. Uh, that's very cool, Chuck. Well, we love what you're doing. We love the organization. And so I want to ask you a big picture question. Can you talk to us a little bit about what courageous love is and then what is living undivided and working undivided as well? Absolutely. So Courageous Love is the organization. It's really a movement, um, a movement for racial healing, solidarity, and justice. You know, I believe that um, for far too long in our country, we have continued to battle with the specter of racism and in all the ways that racism shows up in all of our individual relationships and our institutions and even at the societal level. And yet, in contrast, I just see over and over again in the Bible that God is a God of reconciliation. He's a God of justice. And so our organization really believes that in this moment where you might argue our country is more divided in many ways than it has been, um, at least in our lifetimes, um, that there's a unique opportunity for the church to be a counterculture, a culture that looks like what does it feel like to come together um, to bridge those racial divides and to really bring true healing. Um, and to actually be concerned about justice. And so our organization is really um, trying to go after that and really want to lift up the church in that effort. So Living Undivided is kind of the legacy program that we've been doing now for over seven years. It started at the church where I still am a pastor, Crossroads Church. And what it is is a six-week journey where people get together for two hours every week to have a very honest conversation about race. But it's a conversation with Jesus at the center of it. So there's a lot of story, story sharing. There's a lot of experiential things that happen to help people really understand the story of others. And then we want to mobilize people to be active on the other side of that, to make a difference in their community, because we still believe there are a lot of ways that we can do the work of justice right now, not just at the interpersonal level, but again, at the societal level, in your city and in your community. So Living Undivided is a six-week journey that enables people to do that. A very diverse experience. It's a facilitated experience with a diverse set of facilitators. And it's been really impactful over the years that we've done it. And so working undivided kind of burst out of 2020 in the moment of racial reckoning when we started to get requests from organizations that weren't purchased, police forces, um, corporations saying, hey, we've heard about the work that you're doing, and we would love to see how that might impact our organization as well. And so working undivided is, um, we call it our values-based approach, where we don't necessarily go rooted in the scriptures like we do at the church level. But we certainly still bring those values to bear and our conversations and our journey is still meant to help people bridge racial divides and will be activated for the work of justice. So that's what we do every day as an organization. That's great. I'd encourage people, I'll point them to undivided.com. That's undivided.com. And Chuck, I was on that website just checking out what you guys do and are all about. And I believe it was there. I saw you, there was a video where you were talking about the concept of shalom and this biblical concept of shalom being behind a lot of what you guys do. Can you unpack that and help our people understand that a little bit? Absolutely. And and I would refer your listeners. I mean, there's so much that's been written on shalom, but particularly, um, Neil Plantinga, or Plantinga, I'm not sure how you spell, say his name, but you spell it P-L-A-N-T, like the word plant, I-N-G-A, just has powerful language about shalom is this universal flourishing that God intends. So it's far more than just peace. It's far more than just the laying down of arms, but it really is about flourishing. And that's one of the things that we draw on in our organization. In fact, our North Star, our vision, is we envision a flow of racial healing and justice and we call it a flow because we see that imagery in scripture 
And in that flow, we see it as a place where wounds of the past can be healed and we can cultivate new equitable systems and institutions and communities where everyone can flourish. Again, leaning into that concept of shalom from a biblical standpoint. Oh, I absolutely love everything you're saying, Chuck. So Brian and I are both pastors and obviously we've, you know, all lived through 2020. And I do think that an organization like this is so perfect for such a time as now. I'm so grateful that you're leading it and leaving it so faithfully. How do you think churches and pastors can do a better job of having conversations about race relations and racial justice? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. And I'm glad that you're asking it for pastors. And of course, this expands to every follower of Jesus, but specifically pastors, I think are in a challenging spot. You know, there's a friend of ours um, in this work and he was doing He's preparing to really take a bunch of pastors to do some work on racial equity and justice. And he said, my sense as I talk to pastors across the country is that pastors feel that when it comes to race, they can't win, they can lose, and they can't quit. And if you just stop and think about that, what a, what a depressing, discouraging place to be to feel like there's just no win in sight. And what I would say is, you know, if you think about the story of God's people, um, particularly, I think about the story of Joshua, right? You know, Joshua finds himself at this transition point in the life of the nation of Israel, where the thing that they've longed for for 40 years is literally across the river. And yet, the leader that's been with them for 40 years, who literally, you know, talked with God, had the glow of God, Moses, is gone. So in some ways, you could, see, you could say Joshua could have felt like, man, I can't win. <laughs> you know, we can lose. And we can't quit. I know there's giants in the land because I went over and scouted the land. I mean, he could have had that same mindset. And yet what we see God saying to Joshua in that moment is what I think God is saying to pastors in this moment. Be strong and courageous, for I am with you. And that's why we call it courageous love, because what we believe pastors can lean into in this moment is courage, courage to speak truth, courage to lean into uncomfortable conversations, and also doing all of that from a deep, deep root of love and uh, Pastor Greg Boyd in, in Minneapolis describes love as ascribing work to others at cost to yourselves. And if you think about it, that's why most of us as pastors got into ministry, right? Because we value other people and we're willing to sacrifice so they can come into relationship with Jesus. So we have an opportunity, I think, in this moment to practice courage and love. What does that take? We think it takes community, which is why we think this is work we need to come together around, because you need to have an environment where you can be strengthened and where you can be loved. And where you can lick your wounds, where you have wounds, and where you can be encouraged and inspired by people taking courageous steps. And so I think that pastors have a unique opportunity together in community to say, hey, as it relates to our city, I'm going to interact and interface with pastors from different perspectives in our city, because we as the followers of Jesus can embody this courage and this love, and that can make an impact, not just in our churches, but in our communities as well. That's a good word. Chuck Mingo is the founder and CEO of Courageous Love, the organization behind the living undivided and working undivided experience. He's also pastor at Crossroads Church in Cincinnati. Uh, help us understand the idea of unity. A lot of churches, we talk about unity in John 17. Jesus prays for unity. It's, it's, it's a word we all talk about. Uh, but what's your understanding of it? Let me ask it this way. How would you paint a picture of what unity looks like in the church? Mm, that's really good. Um, there's so much to be said. I'll, I'll say a couple things. One is, I think of unity in the church <clears throat> as dynamic tension. Just think about that concept of dynamic tension. I think sometimes we can confuse unity 
with uniformity. And yet, when you look at 1 Corinthians 12, when you look at Romans, and it talks about the spiritual gifts, it's very clear that God created the church not to be uniform, but to be united in the midst of the diversity that we share. I even think about in the New Testament, there's this interesting shift that happens where we know that the church in Jerusalem was, you know, the Acts 2 church. We talk about that a lot. But there's a clear shift where the energy and the momentum of where the church is being sent from, where, you know, the Apostle Paul gets launched from, isn't the church in Jerusalem, but it's the church in Antioch. And the church in Antioch was all about dynamic tension. It was a diverse community. And out of that diverse community really birthed the movement of the church beyond the Acts church. And so I think for me, as I think about unity in the church specifically, we have an opportunity to model being a community where dynamic tension is okay. I mean, if I think about one of the challenges we have in our culture right now, um, we hate dynamic tension. And unfortunately, all the algorithms and all the things we do are driving us away from dynamic tension into our echo chambers, into places where we burn less calories because everything we hear, see, and think comes from people who already agree with us. And yet that is never what we see the church being called to do or be. And so I think unity is this opportunity for the church to model dynamic tension. And you can have differences, but you're rooted in something deeper. You're rooted in the love of Jesus Christ. And you're rooted in what we do have commonality around. So I think that's the opportunity we have to model unity differently than maybe how we think about that word defined in other contexts. Oh, I think that's such a good definition. And and Chuck, while we have you here, we would just love to hear some wins. Tell us some some personal stories or some organizational or even system stories of how you've seen Living Undivided and what you're doing at Courageous Love experience some of the shalom that you talked about earlier in the show today. Yeah, I'm, I love telling these stories. You know, I think about um, how our work has really enabled people to experience healing. And in some ways, deep healing. So um, one woman who came into our experience, African-American woman, talked about how prior to going through Living Undivided, she recognized that there was kind of this disconnect between her um, African identity or African-American identity and even how she called herself, what she named herself, all of those things. And so she talked about being in a space um, with our cohort, our six-week journey, where it wasn't so much that things were required of her, but there were things there for her. And she was able to root more deeply in her identity in Christ and her identity as an African-American woman. And so one of the things she did, and she said for her, was a declaration of freedom, and she cut off all her hair. Um, because for her, she talked about, like, you know, whether it be um, weeds or other things, she, she valued this long, flowing hair. But she was like, you know what, that's not who I am at my core. And she felt free to live into that more fully coming out of our experience. I also think about um, a friend of mine, Ahmed Beasley, who is a black man who in the midst of the, um, the moment that we had when George Floyd was murdered, um, couldn't shake the desire to reach out to his local police chief and take him to lunch and talk about this moment and how might they work together to ensure this doesn't happen in their community. And out of that, Ahmed invited, um, his name is, the police chief's name is Mike Mills, to do a working undivided cohort. And so earlier in 2021, actually as the Derek Chauvin trial was happening, I got a chance to facilitate for six weeks a conversation in a community here in Cincinnati between black and brown citizens and white police officers. And to see those two groups of people who, again, based on the headlines, you would think wouldn't be able to find common ground, 
find deep common ground and get honest and, and now be mobilized together to do work in the community. I'm inspired by those stories. And I'll share one more story. We did another cohort in a community setting in a small town in Ohio, and we, we, they were going through our faith-based content, even though it wasn't necessarily in a church. And there's a moment in week three where my co-founder, Troy Jackson, does a powerful message on Isaiah 58, what it means to restore streets to dwell in. Really this idea that the Bible does call us not just to individual justice, but to systemic justice and to seek that. And in the midst of that, people were just moved. And this woman, she kind of pauses the whole deal. She says, wait a second, wait a second. Is this put on by a church? (sighs) And, you know, it's kind of one of those moments where I'm like, my butt puckered a little bit. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, where's this going to go? And then she said this. She said, I left my church because my church wasn't talking about these issues. And if you're telling me there's a church that's talking about this, then I feel like God might be calling me back to church. Wow. And it was a moment where I got chills because, and I told my team this, you know, our metrics don't include as an organization, Courageous Love, we're not measuring baptisms. We're not measuring how many people received Christ. And yet I believe what we are doing is an opportunity to spread the loving aroma of Christ. And for people to meet Jesus in places where they might not expect him to show up. And every time that happens in our work, I'm inspired by it. So we are having some wins. It doesn't mean that we don't have incredible headwinds. We're in a very challenging moment in our country to be talking about race. And I'll have to give you all that context. But we are excited because we're seeing an opportunity where people are rising up, taking leadership, being healed, and then being activated to heal others and to bring more justice into our space. That's good. And Chuck, as we close this out, I would love to just give you an opportunity to, we got pastors listening or church leaders to give an encouragement to get involved, but more than that, what would it look like for them to get involved? Point them to the website and also what does uh, this program even look like in a church setting? Yes. Yes. We would love to have a conversation with you. If you're listening to this right now and you're interested in learning more, um, I think you said it earlier, go to undivided.com. You'll find us there. We'd love to connect with you and have a conversation with you about how we might partner with you, your church, or maybe a collection of churches in your community to bring this Living Undivided experience to life. And what that looks like is we do cohorts of six weeks. And so as a church, you would commit to saying, hey, we're going to bring this cohort to our church. We'll help you think through recruiting because you need it to be a diverse group of people. Some churches, if you're homogeneous, choose to partner with other churches in their community. We love that. We think that's a powerful picture of the kingdom itself. And then we will provide the facilitators. We'll provide an incredible interface and experience. We can do it in person. We can also do it virtually. And either way, it can be for your church, a way to form your people. I mean, we think about the work we do as being a part of a discipleship experience for people, um, helping them to connect their faith to this moment that we're in a division and seeing God's vision for unity, solidarity, and justice. We'd love to talk to any pastors who are interested about it. That's a great word. And we'd encourage you to go to undivided.com. You can also learn more about Chuck at chuckmingo.com. That's chuckmingo.com. And you could connect with Chuck on Twitter at chuckmingo. That's at chuckmingo. Chuck, you guys are doing great work. It's been wonderful having you on. Thanks for spending some time with us. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for what you do. Excited to be a part of this community. Absolutely. We're glad to have you on. You're listening to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. All right, Aubrey, that music, besides it just gets me kind of fired up, uh, it, it can only mean one thing, and that is 
one of our favorite segments that we do on a regular basis called Grinds My Gear. Woo-hoo! You know, uh, it's so funny how that has become a little bit one of my lenses through which I go through my week going, oh, I, I, that's <laughs> one right there. And uh, uh, here, let me give the background. If you're a new listener or you're just turning on your own, what are you talking about? Here's what Grinds My Gears is. This is our opportunity to vent about things that bother us, that grinds our gears, that make us angry, that are admittedly minor things. So we just had a great conversation with Chuck Mingo, for instance, about uh, racial justice and the church and racism. Obviously, that's a much bigger deal. Those are serious things. Yeah. World poverty, much bigger deal. The pandemic, much bigger deal. That's not the point of this. This is instead, you know, I don't like when people drive slowly in the left lane or, uh, you know, a couple months ago, I shared one about people who push their dogs around in strollers, like those kinds of things. Uh, Admittedly, not huge deals, but things that bother us. Sound good? Sounds perfect. I I feel like that is the right description of what grinds my gears is. I'm going to go first because this happened the other day. On Monday, my kids were off of school. And so we took kind of a family day. We were uh, out and about and we went out to dinner. All right. And we we tried out this new um, kind of brewery pub where me and my boy, me and my son were both like, we want burgers and the girls. And it was just it was a really good, uh, a good meal. So we're sitting there. And uh, again, Jackson and I both order burgers and this place is known for their burgers. And, you know, you're already paying like 15 bucks for the burger. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. not one. It's we're, we're not at Culver's. We're not at McDonald's here. And so you're paying and, and it's a really good burger. And that here's here's my problem, Aubrey, is then when the waitress says to you, uh, we give you chips with your burger or for two extra dollars, you can have fries. What? And I thought to myself, for the amount of money I'm spending here. It feels very <clears throat> natural that I would get fries with my burger. Totally. I mean, burger and fries go together. And they were offering me fries for more money. And and I hate when it feels like uh, restaurants, especially restaurants where you're paying a, a you know, you're not there on the cheap, uh, kind of nickel and dime you. Yeah. Whether it be... You can have chips. Nobody wants chips at a restaurant with their burger, right? You want fries. Right. And they're saying, we're going to charge you more. And then she listed the other things that I could add to my burger for more money. Uh, Bacon for another. And I'm just like, I just want a burger and fries. And you know what? I'm so cheap. I ended up just getting the chips because they were free. And it it caused my son and I to kind of be like, what was that all about? And he goes, he made a joke. He's like, are they going to charge us for refills as well? (laughs) And here's what I don't understand. If you work at a restaurant or if you own a restaurant with this kind of thing, I actually think that would cause me not to go back to that restaurant. Oh, for sure. Like, and probably if it were me, I would be on Yelp complaining about that. Like, okay. So, so let's sum it up. What grinds my gears? Charging me for fries. With my burger. Yeah. No. I feel like it's the same as, you know, we've all gotten so used to the cultural staple at Mexican restaurants of free chips and salsa when you sit yes. down. Yes. That when you sit down at a Mexican restaurant and they charge you for chips and salsa, you're like, 
flabbergasted by that. That doesn't make any sense. And I feel like that's the same thing. Like French fries come with the burger. I'm sorry. That's just, you don't get upcharged for that. That's just like a right of Americans to get your French fries with your burger. <laughs> when that happened the other day, I was disturbed. I was yeah. frustrated. And then my first thought was, we're doing grinds my gears this week. Yeah, this is yeah. coming I'm out. This I'm is so coming out. I'm so glad we did. Okay. I, I have a few. I'm so right. Yes, I'll you always say, do. Yeah. So I'll just say the first one, which I guess maybe this is pushing it because it is a little more serious. We've we've joked about this week because I have COVID. Earlier this week, I had COVID brain and have just been a little bit out of it. It's made parenting hard. It's made functioning in real life hard. So I don't really have much to say about that, except I COVID brain grinds my gears. Like it is real. <laughs> I don't like it. And then the hard part when you have COVID is you're getting phone calls all day long from the schools, from the doctors, from the your place of employment, because everyone needs to know how you are so they can make decisions, which is, I understand that. But you're like having to answer these questions while you're having COVID brain. And it is so complicated. I'm telling you, it's not, <laughs> it's not good. Okay. So that's, that's one. Here's my other two. Um, and this happened because I, since I had COVID, I've been watching a lot of shows. And my blessed sweet husband will come in and he'll be like, what are you watching? What's happening on that? <laughs> Who's that character? What's happening now? And I'm like, if you want to watch it, I know we can't really be near each other right now because we're isolating, but just watch it. Like go to the Netflix account and watch it. I don't want to sit here and explain to you what I'm watching. So that's one. Like people who ask questions during shows or movies, but they're unwilling to actually watch it. And then I have one more. Can I tell you this one? I, I would be excited to hear it. <laughs> this is one's a little bit personal. And I don't think she ever listens to the show. So I'm going to go off on my sister for just a minute. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, little sister, if you are listening. We got in a little bit of a tiff over something a few weeks ago. Not a big deal. Okay. Like enough that I feel like I can say it on the radio. So not a real conflict. But I, I apologize to her. And here's what she said. I'm sorry you got mad. Oh, <laughs> That is not an apology. That is a non-apology apology. apology. That's like saying, I'm sorry your feelings got hurt. I'm sorry you're upset. But in no way, shape, or form did she own any part of her situation in the conflict. Now, we did have a conflict about that. I said, that's not an apology. So (laughs) she did come back and say, I'm sorry, I hurt you. But that non-apology apologizers, that grinds my gears. That's a good one. So if my wife were on here, she would uh, she would be so excited about your first one there about uh, asking, what are you watching or this? I have this (laughs) terrible habit. If she's just like we're sitting on the couch and she's just like texting, I'll be like, who are you texting? What's going on? And she'll look at me like, what? (laughs) And it's not like I'm not trusting her. It's literally I'm like, who are you texting? You're just curious. And she gives me this look like you've got to be kidding me. All right. I have one more that is restaurant related and it is such a minor thing. And it it was really gross the other day. Here we go. I'm at Panera the other day. I love my Panera up where I normally do my work. Yeah. I went to sit at a table and there was a uh, just a nasty smell. I was like, what is going on here? And I thought it was the lady sitting in the booth right by me. I was like, oh, I'm not going to sit here. I go across the restaurant to another table. Nasty smell is there, too. And I'm sitting starting to think, is it me? Like, am am I the origin of this? <laughs> right. You start to have this. And then, Aubrey, here's what I figured out. And please, if you work at a restaurant oh, no. or you own a restaurant, like this feels like a low bar, but don't let this happen. 
I, I figured out that they wiped off all the tables with the dirty washcloth. <gasps> ah! And so it made every table that they cleaned awful. And to the point that I like had to search no. out a table no, that no, hadn't no. been cleaned. And no. I was like, it no. was one of the worst smells. And you're just like, you're at a restaurant. Like you, you can't have tables that stink. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, one in this day and age, especially like that's just not sanitary or okay. Two, there is nothing like a nasty, stinky wash. Nothing. Pod. I'm sorry, but that is repulsive. You're a restaurant. Like yeah. you need to be above board. I don't know what number I'm on. Four, that's just gross. Five, you need to complain about that on Yelp. Another Yelp complaint, Brian. Oh, I can't do that to my Panera. But uh, Brian, one of you, the worst you parts. You owe it to humanity. And then one of the worst parts is you get to the table and I just threw my bag on the table. Then all of a sudden I was, what's that? And I, so now I stuck my bag in it. So. Yes, that's it. Two of them restaurant related. Give me my fries for free and quit wiping tables with dirty washcloths. <laughs> yeah, maybe you could quietly mention it to a manager. If you don't want to throw your Panera under the bus, just be like, hey, just so you know. And then you would have gotten mad if I went to that manager and they said, I'm really sorry that that bothered you or something like that. <laughs> I'm sorry you're mad. I'm sorry you got mad. <laughs> All right. It always feels good to unload those things. Well, coming up next, what difference does the gospel make in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis? I'm going to read another tweet for you that kind of gets us into that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. Uh, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Dane Ortland tweeted this the other day. Dane Ortland, he's a pastor in Naperville, uh, a, an author. He's been on our show before. Uh, Dane Ortland wrote this on Twitter. Gospel culture is simply the horizontalizing, horizontalizing of what we believe vertically. And if those beliefs are not horizontalized, that shows we don't actually believe them vertically to begin with. Forgiven, we forgive. Loved, we love. Hmm. Uh, embraced, we embraced. Encouraged, we encouraged. So a little bit longer of a, of a tweet there. But Aubrey, what do you think of this idea of how we live out the gospel horizontally actually is a great indicator of how much we truly believe it vertically. What do you think about what Dane Ortland had to say there? Yeah, I, I love this quote because I do think sometimes we fall into the trap of believing that it's what we believe only. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. if we believe the right things, if we have the right orthodoxy, if we have the right theology, if we have the right doctrine, then we're saved, period. But I think what Dane Ortland is saying is the call is biblically to love God and love neighbor. Mm -hmm. And so the way that we understand our beliefs or the way that we practice our beliefs, the way that we live our beliefs, the way we um, believe, I guess, mm -hmm. is as important as what we believe. Yeah. Yeah. And that this is a really good indicator. Like you'll know them by their fruit, right? The way that we're showing love to other people, forgiveness to other people, encouragement to other people shows how we've received that from God. And That's I right. think what I like about it too is it starts with us understanding how good God has been to us. And it starts as a posture of worship and asking the Lord to reframe our understanding of his generosity to us. And then 
out of that abundance, we love other people. Yeah. So Dane Ortland, he did join us a little uh, a while back to talk about his book. The book is called Deeper, Real Change for Real Sinners. Um, so let's keep unpacking this, Aubrey, because, you know, we, we talk a lot about uh, what Jesus is, who who Jesus is, what he has done for us. That's good news. Uh, and now we're supposed to live that out. But we do, you and I are pastors, so we probably take this for granted, but we throw the word gospel around a lot. Let's, this is a difficult question, but oh, I'm going to put you on the spot in the midst of, in the midst of COVID. How would you define the gospel? What, oh, so how, you know, how do you define it? Oh, wait, you took a class. I you did. Do that. I mean, this is my master's degree right here, so I should feel very ready to answer this question. Yes, the gospel is God's big dream for the world, starting before the world even began. Like if we think about, if we think about Genesis. We see that the world was formless and dark and chaotic, but God spoke and brought order and life and goodness and beauty. And the gospel begins there, that God's heart has always been about taking our darkness and our formlessness and turning it into something life-giving and and wonderful. Hmm. And then we also see if we continue reading in scripture, we think about the Exodus, right? The fact that there are people enslaved to this terrible Pharaoh and God has always been about creating a people for himself, removing them from their slavery and their captivity. And that's both physical and um, spiritual, of course, that God is constantly about removing us from our idolatry, our enslavement to sin, our enslavement to the evil powers of this world and setting us free and making for us a people that he calls his own, bringing us under his lordship instead. All of that we see culminating in Jesus Christ who came to you know live the life we couldn't live and, and die on the cross and rise again so that we could experience his salvation, his lordship, and that life-giving power that we saw back in Genesis 1. So the gospel is this incredible, robust gift that we are able to experience when we submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and partner with him in making this world a life-giving place where other mm. people can flourish. Yeah, and I think that's what Dane Ortland's trying to get at, right? Like, as I believe the good news vertically that – uh, that I, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me and that that's where my hope lies and, uh, and that I've been forgiven, that I have been shown grace, that I have been loved more than I can ever imagine. He's saying that that will then fuel how you live and treat people horizontally. That's now. right. Uh, that because I'm forgiven, I will forgive. Yeah. Uh, that because I was given grace I didn't deserve, I will show grace that you don't deserve. And, yeah. and it keeps going and going and going. Uh, so, Aubrey, let's take the negative angle of this. If you are not a forgiving type of person, mm. if you are not a loving person, if you don't look at your life and see grace or whatever else it might be, um, does that call into question whether you believe or or know the gospel at all <laughs> or whether it's just decrease it? What, what should yeah. that do? What, what alarms should that raise in our lives? I mean, I think it's a really valid question, and I don't think any of us want to hear like – Yes, that calls into question our faith mm -hmm. because, of course, balanced with all of that is the grace of God and that our salvation is dependent on his work and not ours. But I do think there's a litmus test, right? Mm -hmm. Like, are you seeing yourself grow in forgiveness? Are you seeing yourself grow in, um, you know, less bitterness? 
are you seeing yourself um, living, you know, more for the obedience of Jesus and the glory of God than you were before? I think we do have to be willing to ask ourselves those really hard questions and then not to be afraid, but then to go, okay, God, wow, this is an area of my life that maybe I haven't submitted to your Lordship. Like, even though I believe you died and rose again, man, I have not submitted all of myself to your Lordship. And that's part of the gospel. Like we, again, yeah. we see the Lord wants to remove us from our idolatry and place us under his Lordship. And so, um, God, could you, by your grace and your mercy, take this area of my life and my heart and my obedience and shape it? to be submissive to you. Mm. And again, I not not to be afraid, not to be like, am I a Christian? Oh no, God hates me. But instead, allow that to be an invitation towards God so that he can shape you spiritually and mold you more into who he wants you to become. That in and of itself, like if you're willing to do that, that's a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work yes. in your life. Yes, absolutely. And I, I like to think in terms of proportions, right? It's I don't think it's an all or nothing deal. Mm. I think... Uh, I think the, the the amount that I know and deeply understand and believe the gospel, it will become proportional that I will display that in my life to other good, people. Brian. Not perfectly, yeah. yes. but proportionally. And the 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 inverse, the vice versa, is true. The the amount that I'm showing grace and love and generosity and other things to people, not perfectly, yep. uh, is proportional to what I understand the gospel to be. And so I think, like you said, I think a good word there is it it becomes a good litmus test to look at our own lives and go. How am I living? What am I doing? So grateful for Dane Ortland. If you want to hear our interview with Dane Ortland when he talked more about this and his book, Deeper, Real Change for Real Sinners, uh, go get our podcast. We had him on on October the 15th. So you can go search the podcast. I remember that he had a lot of great stuff to say. So go get the podcast and check that out. Well, coming up next, we're going to end the show by asking this question. How can we find hope and joy in seasons of light and darkness. We're going to do that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us as we close the show out on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Aubrey, we, we always say we like to end the show with some challenge or some encouragement and, and want to do so with a story. Uh, we're going to play a clip here in a second, but why don't you, you, you were telling me about this. Why don't you tell us a little bit of the story mm. of Cecilia? I think it's pronounced Blomdahl. Yeah. Uh, and, and where she lives. And then we'll listen to the audio. Yeah. Well, we've talked about Cecilia on the show before. She lives in like the actual North Pole, this place called Svalbard. And, um, it's an island that's actually close to the North Pole. And we've talked about her before. People can follow her on YouTube if they want to. But, um, she, you know, she lives this like unbelievable life where it's dark, I think three months out of the year, it's called polar night. Mm -hmm. They literally don't see a, the sun. They see no light except for what's in their house. I mean, it is a wild way to live. And it is, it of course, in the North Pole. So it's constantly snowy and but anyway, so recently one of her YouTube videos, they had not seen the sun in 70 days and she went outside 
and saw light in the sky, what began to look like the Northern Lights. We can talk about later exactly what happened, but it was like she was blown away and that her whole family came and they watched these little lights in the sky. And I don't know, there was something really powerful about it. Of course, we're going to play some of the audio for you, but if you could go on YouTube to find her videos and see it. You'll see how beautiful and powerful this is. But there's, she woke up one day to a pink sky, a ton of shooting stars, and it just really moved her. So I think it's definitely worth playing for our listeners. And then you and I can talk about why it's so important. Yeah. So let's go ahead and listen to that right now. It has been 70 days without seeing the sun. An incredible few weeks of civil twilight and blue hour something that now feels like a lifetime ago. Living without daylight is something I've always said that I love. I do love the polar night. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't come with its own set of challenges. A little more than 30 of those 70 days have been pitch black, with no light reaching us at all. You wake up to dark skies, eat lunch with the stars, and go to bed with only the moon as a nightlight. There is nothing telling your body when it's time to get up in the morning, when you should have energy, and when you should be tired. So naturally, your body decides it's a good time to be tired all the time. Now, is that a bad thing? Well, not necessarily. Polar night is known as a time of year when we relax a lot more than usual. We charge our batteries, so to speak. So after more than 30 days of waking up to complete darkness, imagine my disbelief when I walk outside one morning to pink and purple skies. What is that? I said to myself as I stood in my pajamas in minus 15 degrees watching the bright horizon. What month is it? There shouldn't be any light for a few more weeks. And then I realized, I've seen this before. This is a rare phenomenon that we've witnessed once or twice a year here on Svalbard for the last few years. I'm so confused. It's just... Where is that light coming from? The moon is right there, which is also beautiful. I'm going to show you. There's northern lights right here. But what is that? We are too far away from the light to reach us at all. It's still mid-December. This happens at the end of January. So what is this? <laughs> this is so magical. Um, I just Googled it because we've gotten this before. So this isn't daylight. It is something with the clouds on the mainland that sends the red of the spectrum of the sun rays towards Svalbard. Only the red colors. That's why it's this pinkish, sometimes super red purple skies so it isn't daylight but it's just sending us the that spectrum the, that color of the spectrum it's magical all right uh, like you said if i would encourage people to go find the video of this because this the visual is stunning just yes. absolutely stunning but aubrey got me thinking um you know kind of to make kind of the spiritual leap right here uh it's winter time, right? And yes, uh, that with winter time comes cold and darkness, and uh, not this extreme for the vast, vast majority of us. But Chicago winters are nothing to laugh about. No joke, right? Right. Uh, and for a lot of people to spiritualize this for us, uh, they feel like uh, in their souls, like winter. Right? Yes. We've been in a pandemic yes. forever. 
Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in our world. And, and they, they, they struggle for hope. They struggle for joy in seasons of this darkness of the soul, if you will. Um, and that's why we wanted to play this because we thought this was vivid imagery. Like, can you imagine being for 70 days without the sun? Well, some no. people, metaphorically speaking, can imagine that, right? Like to take the metaphor going. So, Aubrey, let's try to end with some encouragement for the people out there uh, who feel like they're in darkness, they're struggling, they're just uh, they can't kind of find that hope and that joy that mm. we often talk about. What do you do in those seasons? Yeah, I mean, we we have a friend, and I I think this person would be okay with us talking about it. I won't say this person's name, but they really struggle with seasonal depression. And mm -hmm. this time of year, I mean, it's just like December hits, the darkness hits early, and this person just all of a sudden like can't get out of bed. And that's very real for people. You know, God gave us seasons and sunlight because of the vitamin D, but because I there is something where our soul needs to be able to experience light, right? Mm -hmm, it needs to be able mm -hmm. to experience the sun and needs to be able to go outside and even just see the difference between day and night. And so thinking about um, Cecilia's life where you see the joy and the excitement that all of a sudden there was a pink bright sky because of this phenomenon called the Rayleigh dispersion or the Rayleigh scattering like you see how powerful that was for her. So then, yes, to answer your question spiritually, for us, when we feel like we're in seasons of darkness, like it makes the light that much more mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. And I do think it makes being really intentional about choosing hope and choosing like markers of, um, I don't know, ways to celebrate or ways to find joy in the darkness that much more important. But I think the biggest thing is when you just can't, right? Like when the seasons of life are so difficult and you cannot find God's light in the darkness, when you've got loved ones who are struggling with finding God's light in the darkness and you just, even that thought of like, well, I can't choose to find light or hope. Mm. I think some things that we can do I'm not saying this will fix everything. I'm not saying this will like move us out of depression, but I do think um, if it's serious enough, you've got to talk to a doctor or a therapist. Mm. I think that's God's light right there is providing that provision to um, opening up scripture again, looking at the Psalms, looking at the laments and seeing that, you know, you're not alone. People throughout scripture, throughout history have struggled with these things, turning on some worship music. Mm. Um, you know, people talk about the power of those, um, those uh, lights that you plug in and, and give you vitamin D. I think that's a gift from God. I think encouraging a friend uh, like via text, reaching out to somebody, Hey, I need some help watching a cheesy Hallmark movie. <laughs> like, you know, little things that bring you joy that feel like these aren't going to help. They're not big deals can yeah. actually become these really powerful, defiant acts of hope when you're barely holding on. That's good. And, and a reminder where we want to close today is to remind all of us uh, that even in the darkest of times, even in the lowest of lows, whatever imagery you want to use, God is present. Uh, his light is still present. Uh, he promises to always be with us. And so uh, there are times in life where it's hard to think even uh, even to conceptualize hope and joy and yeah. peace and whatever else it might be. But that doesn't mean that those still aren't a reality. Uh, and, and, you know, a topic for a whole nother day is what do you do when it's all light? 
when, when mm. life is all roses mm. and all good, as also happens in this area of the world, uh, those can also be difficult times to see God's hand because we're like, nah, what do I need God Everything's for? Everything's fine. Yeah, exactly. But specifically for those of you who are struggling in the darkness, I think Aubrey gave you a lot of great um, uh, action points. You know, if it's really bad, call somebody, call yeah. a doctor, yeah. uh, talk about it, but also be reminded uh, that God promises to be present to be powerful, to offer peace. I'm going to be a pastor here and give you all the peas, right? I love and these peas. Keep going. Continue, Keep preaching, pastor. I'm going to continue to do that. And so uh, if you feel like you're in 70 days of darkness, like mm-hmm. it, like it's happening at the North Pole, uh, there is hope and there is joy. And we want to point you to the person and work of Jesus. Hopefully that gives you some hope today on a Chicago cold, wintry day. Uh, Aubrey, I hope we find you tomorrow even more, even feeling a little bit better Thank from you, COVID. Thank you, Brian. Keep praying for me and for my whole family. Absolutely. We're excited for tomorrow's show for many reasons, one of which is the return of Ian Simpkins. So we're excited for that. But thanks for joining us today. Uh, Aubrey and I will be back again tomorrow from 4 until 6 p.m. For Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.